0: Hi, everybody, Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics on the second anniversary of this podcast. I want to take a minute to say thank you to everybody who took the time to write an email, to send me a voice message, or to leave comments congratulating me on the two-year anniversary of this podcast. I really, really appreciate it, guys, and I'm so happy that you are finding Uh, the podcast useful in your schooling and just for your own personal enjoyment. It means so much to me to know that you're out there listening. So thank you so much. I really, really do appreciate it. Now for a bit of bad news, I'm in the middle of the picture of Dorian Gray as those of you who are in the middle of listening are aware, but I had some kind of mishap with my laptop and it would not connect to the internet. The good news is that I have the laptop back And I can continue. The bad news is that those audio files are MIA. I don't know where they are and no one can help me find my sound files. But in any event, to prevent further delay, I will just do the OG thing and re-record them. I'm okay with doing that. So without further delay, I give you chapters six through eight of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. Thank you guys so much for your patience, and thank you again for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Please stay tuned. The Picture of Dorian Gray, Chapter Six. I suppose you have heard the news, Basil. "'said Lord Henry that evening "'as Hallward was shown into a little private room "'at the Bristol, where dinner had been laid for three. "'No, Harry,' answered the artist, "'giving his hat and coat to the bowing waiter. "'What is it? "'Nothing about politics, I hope. "'They don't interest me. "'There is hardly a single person "'in the House of Commons worth painting, "'though many of them would be "'the better for a little whitewashing. "'Dorian Gray is engaged to be married.' said Lord Henry, watching him as he spoke. Hallward started and then frowned. "'Dorian engaged to be married?' he cried. "'Impossible!' "'It is perfectly true.' "'To whom?' "'To some little actress or other. "'I can't believe it. "'Dorian is far too sensible. "'Dorian is far too wise not to do foolish things now and then, my dear Basil. "'Marriage is hardly a thing that one can do now and then, Harry. "'Except in America.' rejoined lord henry languidly but i didn't say he was married i said he was engaged to be married there is a great difference i have a distinct remembrance of being married but i have no recollection at all of being engaged i am inclined to think that i never was engaged but think of dorian's birth and position and wealth it would be absurd for him to marry so much beneath him if you want to make him marry this girl tell him that basil he is sure to do it then "'Whenever a man does a thoroughly stupid thing, it is always from the noblest motives. "'I hope the girl is good, Harry. "'I don't want to see Dorian tied to some vile creature who might degrade his nature and ruin his intellect. "'Oh, she is better than good. She is beautiful,' murmured Lord Henry, sipping a glass of vermouth and orange bitters. "'Dorian says she is beautiful, and he is not often wrong about things of that kind.' Your portrait of him has quickened his appreciation of the personal appearance of other people. It has had that effect amongst others. We are to see her tonight, if that boy doesn't forget his appointment. Are you serious? Quite serious, Basil. I should be miserable if I thought I should ever be more serious than I am at the present moment. But do you approve of it, Harry? Asked the painter, walking up and down the room and biting his lip. You can't approve of it, possibly. It is some silly infatuation. I never approve or disapprove of anything now. It is an absurd attitude to take towards life. We are not sent into the world to air out our moral prejudices. I never take any notice of what common people say, and I never interfere with what charming people do. It is a personality. If a, per- if a personality fascinates me, whatever mode of expression that personality selects is absolutely delightful to me. Dorian Gray falls in love with a beautiful girl who acts Juliet and proposes to marry her. Why not? If he wedded Messalina, he would be none less interesting. You know, I am not a champion of marriage. The real drawback to marriage is that it makes one unselfish, and unselfish people are colorless. They lack individuality. Still, there are certain temperaments that marriage makes more complex. They retain their egotism and add to it many other egos. They are forced to have more than one life. They become more highly organized, and to be highly organized is, I should fancy, the object of man's existence. Besides, every experience is a value, and whatever one may say against marriage, it certainly is an experience. I hope that Dorian Gray will make this girl his wife, passionately adore her for six months, and then suddenly become fascinated by someone else. He would be a wonderful study." You don't mean a single word of all that, Harry. You know you don't. If Dorian Gray's life were spoiled, no one would be sorrier than yourself. You are much better than you pretend to be. Lord Henry laughed. The reason we all like to think so well of others is that we are all afraid for ourselves. The basis of optimism is sheer terror. We think that we are generous because we credit our neighbor with the possession of those virtues that are likely to be a benefit to us. We praise the banker that we may overdraw our account and find good qualities in the highwayman in the hopes that he may spare our pockets. I mean, everything I have said, I have the greatest contempt for optimism and for a spoiled life. No one is spoiled by one whose growth is arrested. If you want to mar a future, you have merely to reform it. As for marriage, of course, that would be silly, but there are other and more interesting bonds between men and women. I will certainly encourage them. They have the charm of being fashionable. But here is Dorian himself. He will tell you more than I can. My dear Harry, my dear Basil, you must both congratulate me, said the lad, throwing off his evening cape with its satin lined wings and shaking each of his friends by the hand in turn. I have never been so happy. Of course, it is sudden. All really delightful things are, and yet it seems to me to be the one thing that I have been looking for all my life. He was flushed with excitement and pleasure and looked extraordinarily handsome. I hope you will always be very happy, Dorian, said Hallward, but I don't quite forgive you for not having let me know of your engagement. You let Harry know. And I don't forgive you for being late for dinner, broke in Lord Henry, putting his hand on the lad's shoulder and smiling as he spoke. Come, let us sit down and try what the new chef here is like, and then you will tell us all how it came to be about. There is really not much to tell, cried Dorian, as they took their seats at the small round table. What happened was simply this. After I left you yesterday evening, Harry, I dressed, had some dinner at that little Italian restaurant in Rupert Street you introduced me to, and went down at eight o'clock to the theater. Sybil was playing Rosalind. Of course, the scenery was dreadful at the and the Orlando absurd. But Sybil, you should have seen her when she came on in her boy's clothes. She was perfectly wonderful. She wore a moss-colored velvet jerkin with cinnamon sleeves, slim brown cross-gartered hose, a dainty little green cap, and a hawk's feather caught in a jewel, and a hooded cloak lined with dull red. She had never seemed to me more exquisite. She had all the delicate grace of that Tangara figure that you have in your studio, Basil. Her hair clustered round her face like dark leaves round a pale rose. As for her acting, well, you shall see her tonight. She is simply a born artist. I sat in the dingy box, absolutely enthralled. I forgot that I was in London and in the 19th century. I was away with my love in a forest that no man had ever seen. After the performance was over, I went behind and spoke to her. As we were sitting together, suddenly there came into her eyes a look that I had never seen there before. My lips moved toward hers. We kissed each other. I can't describe to you what I felt at that moment. It seemed to me that all my life had been narrowed to one perfect point of rose-colored joy. She trembled all over and shook like a white narcissist. Then she flung herself on her knees and kissed my hands. I feel that I should not tell you this, but I can't help it of course our engagement is a dead secret she has not even told her own mother i don't know why my guard i don't know what my guardians will say lord radley is sure to be furious i don't care i shall be of age in less than a year and then i can do what i like i have been right basil haven't i to take my love out of poetry and to find my wife in shakespeare's plays lips that shakespeare taught to speak have whispered their secrets in my ear "'I have had the arms of Rosalind around me "'and kissed Juliet on the mouth.' "'Yes, Dorian, I suppose you were right,' said Hull, Said Hallward slowly. "'Have you seen her today?' asked Lord Henry. "'Dorian Gray shook his head. "'I left her in the forest of Arden. "'I shall find her in an orchard in Verona.' "'Lord Henry sipped his champagne in a, medit- in a meditative manner. "'At what particular point did you mention the word marriage, Dorian?' and what did she say in answer? Perhaps you forgot all about it. My dear Harry, I did not treat it as a business transaction, and I did not make any formal proposal. I told her that I loved her, and she said that she was not worthy to be my wife. Not worthy? Why, the whole world is nothing to me compared with her. Women are wonderfully practical, murmured Lord Henry, much more practical than we are. In situations of that kind, we often forget to say something about marriage, and they always remind us. Hallward laid his hand upon his arm. Don't, Harry. You have annoyed Dorian. He is not like other men. He would never bring misery upon anyone. His nature is too fine for that. Lord Henry looked across the table. Dorian is never annoyed with me, he answered. I ask the question for the best reason possible for the only reason indeed that excuses one for asking any question, simple curiosity. I have a theory that it is always the women who propose to us and not we who propose to the women, except of course in middle-class life, but the middle classes are not modern. Dorian Gray laughed and tossed his head. You are quite incorrigible, Harry, but I don't mind. It is impossible to be angry with you. When you see Sybil Vane, you will feel that the man who could wrong her would be a beast, a beast without a heart. I cannot understand how anyone can wish to shame the thing he loves. I love Sybil Vane. I want to place her on a pedestal of gold and to see the world worship the woman who is mine. What is marriage? An irrevocable vow. You mock at it for that. Ah, don't mock. It is an irrevocable vow that I want to take her trust makes me faithful, her belief makes me good. When I am with her, I regret all that you have taught me. I become different from what you have known me to be. I am changed, and the mere touch of Sybil Vane's hand makes me forget that, makes me forget you and all your wrong, fascinating, poisonous, delightful theories. And those are, asked Lord Henry, helping himself to some salad, Oh, your theories about life, your theories about love, your theories about pleasure, all your theories, in fact, Harry. Pleasure is the only thing worth having a theory about, he answered in his slow, melodious voice. But I am not afraid I cannot claim my theory as my own. It belongs to nature, not to me. Pleasure is nature's test, her sign of approval. When we are happy, we are always good. But when we are good, we are not always happy. "'Ah, but do you—but what do you mean by good?' cried Basil Hallward. "'Yes,' echoed Dorian, leaning back in his chair and looking at Lord Henry over the heavy clusters of of purple-lipped irises that stood in the center of the table. "'What do you mean by good, Harry?' To be good is to be in harmony with oneself he replied touching the thin stem of his glass with his pale fine-pointed fingers discord is to be forced to be discord is to be forced to be in harmony with others one's own life that is the important thing as for the lives of our neighbors if one wishes to be a prig or a puritan one can flaunt one's moral views about them but they are not one's concern besides individualism has really the higher aim "'Modern morality consists in accepting the standard of one's age. "'I consider that for any man of culture to accept the standard of his age "'is a form of the grossest immorality. "'But surely if one lives merely for oneself, Harry, "'one pays a terrible price for doing so,' suggested the painter. "'Yes, we are overcharged for everything nowadays. "'I should fancy that the real tragedy of the poor "'is that they can afford nothing but self-denial.' "'Beautiful sins, beautiful things are the privilege of the rich. "'One has to pay in other ways but money. "'What sort of ways, Basil? "'Oh, I should fancy in remorse, in suffering, and well, in consciousness of degradation.' "'Lord Henry shrugged his shoulders. "'My dear fellow, medieval art is charming, but medieval emotions are out of date. "'One can use them in fiction, of course.' But then the only things that one can use in fiction are the things that one has ceased to use. In fact, believe me, no civilized man ever regrets a pleasure, and no uncivilized man ever knows what a pleasure is. I know what pleasure is, cried Dorian Gray. It is to adore someone. That is certainly better than being adored, he answered, toying with some fruits. Being adored is a nuisance. "'Women treat us just as humanity treats its gods. "'They worship us and are always bothering us "'to do something for them. "'I should have said that whatever they ask for, "'they had first given to us,' murmured the lad gravely. "'They create love in our natures. "'They have a right to demand it back.' "'That is quite true, Dorian,' cried Hallward. "'Nothing is ever quite true,' said Lord Henry. "'This is,' interrupted Dorian, You must admit, Harry, that women give to men the very gold of their lives. Possibly, he sighed, but they invariably want it back in such very small change. That is the worry. Women, as some witty Frenchman once put it, inspire us with the desire to do masterpieces and always prevent us from carrying them out. Harry, you are dreadful. I don't know why I like you so much. You will always like me, Dorian, he replied. You will have some coffee, you fellows? Walter, bring coffee and fine champagne and some cigarettes. No, don't mind the cigarettes. I have some. Basil, I can't allow you to smoke cigars. You must have a cigarette. A cigarette is the perfect type of perfect pleasure. It is exquisite and, inle- and it leaves one unsatisfied. What more can one want? Yes, Dorian, you will always be fond of me. "'I represent to you all the sins "'that you have never had the courage to commit. "'What nonsense you talk, Harry!' cried the lad, "'taking a light from the fire-breathing silver dragon "'that the waiter had placed on the table. "'Let us go down to the theatre. "'When Sybil comes on the stage, "'you will have a new ideal of life. "'She will represent something to you "'that you have never known.' "'I have known everything,' said Lord Henry "'with a tired look in his eyes.' "'but I am always ready for a new emotion. "'I am afraid, however, that for me at any rate "'there is no such thing. "'Still, your wonderful your wonderful girl may thrill me. "'I love acting. "'It is so much more than real life. "'Let us go. "'Dorian, you will come with me. "'I am so sorry, Basil, "'but there is only room for two in the Brougham. "'You must follow us in a hansom. "'They got up and put on their coats, "'sipping their coffee standing.' The painter was silent and preoccupied there was a gloom over him he could not bear this marriage and yet it seemed to him to be better than many other things that might have happened after a few minutes they all passed downstairs he drove off by himself as had been arranged and watched the flashing lights of the little brougham in front of the little brougham in front of him a strange sense of loss came over him He felt that Dorian Gray would never again be to him all that he had been in the past. Life had come between them. His eyes darkened and the crowded, flaring streets became blurred to his eyes. When the cab drew up to the theater, it seemed to him that he had grown years older. Chapter 7 For some reason or other, the house was crowded that night, and the fat Jew manager who met them at the door was beaming from ear to ear with an oily, tremulous smile. He escorted them to their box with a sort of pompous humility, waving his fat, jeweled hands and talking at the top of his voice. Dorian Gray loathed him more than ever. He felt as if he had come to look for Miranda and had been met by Caliban. Lord Henry, upon the other hand, rather liked him. At least he declared he did, and insisted on shaking him by the hand and assuring him that he was proud to meet a man who had discovered a real genius and gone bankrupt over a poet. Hallward amused himself with watching the faces in the pit. The heat was terribly oppressive, and the huge sunlight flamed like a monstrous dahlia with petals of yellow fire. The youths in the gallery had taken off their coats and waistcoats and hung them over the side. They talked to each other across the theater and shared their oranges with the tawdry girls who sat beside them. Some women were laughing in the pit. Their voices were horribly shrill and discordant. The sound of the popping of corks came from the bar. What a place to find one's divinity in, said Lord Henry. Yes, answered Dorian Gray. It was here I found her, and she is divine beyond all living things. When she acts, you will forget everything. These common rough people with their coarse faces and brutal gestures become quite different when she is on the stage. They sit silently and watch her. They weep and laugh as she wills them to do. She makes them as responsive as a violin. She spiritualizes them, and one feels that they are of the same flesh and blood as one's self the same flesh and blood as oneself. Oh, I hope not, exclaimed Lord Henry, who was scanning the occupants of the gallery through his opera glass. Don't pay any attention to him, Dorian, said the painter. I understand what you mean, and I believe in this girl. Anyone you love must be marvelous, and any girl who has the effect you describe must be fine and noble. To spiritualize one's age, that is something worth doing." If this girl can give a soul to those who have lived without one, if she can create the sense of beauty in people whose lives have been sordid and ugly, if she can strip them of their selfishness and lend them tears for sorrows that are not their own, she is worthy of all your adoration, worthy of the adoration of the world. This marriage is quite right. I did not think so at first, but I admit it now. The gods made Sybil vain for you. Without her, you would have been incomplete.' Thanks, Basil, answered Dorian Gray, pressing his hand. I knew you would understand me. Harry is so cynical, he terrifies me. But here is the orchestra. It is quite dreadful, but it only lasts for about five minutes. Then the curtain rises and you will see the girl to whom I am going to give all my life, to whom I have given everything that is good in me. A quarter of an hour afterwards, amidst the extraordinary turmoil of applause, Sybil Vane stepped on on the stage. Yes, she was certainly lovely to look at, one of the loveliest creatures, Lord Henry thought, that he had ever seen. There was something of the fawn in her shy grace and startled eyes. A faint blush, like the shadow of a rose in a mirror of silver, came to her cheeks as she glanced at the crowded, enthusiastic house. She stepped back a few paces, and her lips seemed to tremble. Basil How- Howard leaped to his feet and began to applaud, motionless as and a dream, said Dorian, gazing at her. Lord Henry peered through his glasses, murmuring, charming, charming. The scene was the hall of Capulet's house and Romeo in his pilgrim's dress had entered with Mercutio and his other friends. The band, such as it was, struck up a few bars of music and the dance began. Through the crowd of ungainly, shabbily dressed actors, Sibyl Vane moved like a creature from a finer world. Her body swayed while she danced as a plant sways in the water. The curves of her throat were the curves of a white lily. Her hand seemed to be made of cool ivory, yet she was curiously listless. She showed no sign of joy when her eyes rested on Romeo. The few words she had to speak, Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand so much, which mannerly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmers' kiss. With a brief dialogue that follows, were spoken in a thoroughly artificial manner. The voice was exquisite, but from the point of view of tone, it was absolutely false. It was wrong in color. It took away all the life from the verse. It made the passion unreal. Dorian Gray grew pale as he watched her. He was puzzled and anxious. Neither of his friends dared to say anything to him. She seemed to them to be absolutely incompetent. They were horribly disappointed. Yet they felt that the true test of any Juliet is the balcony scene of the second act. They waited for that. If she failed there, there was nothing in her. She looked charming as she came out in the moonlight. That could not be denied but the staginess of her acting was unbearable and grew worse as she went on. Her gestures became absurdly artificial. She overemphasized everything she had to say. The beautiful passage, thou knowest the mask of night is on my face, else would a maiden blush be paint my cheek, for that which thou hast heard me speak tonight, was declaimed with the painful precision of a schoolgirl who had been taught to recite by some second-rate professor of elocution when she leaned over the balcony and came to those wonderful lines. Although I joy in thee, I have no joy of this contract to-night. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden, too like the lightning which doth cease to be. Ere one can say it lightens, sweet good-night. This bud of love by summer's ripening breath may prove a beauteous flower when next we meet. She spoke the words as though they conveyed as though they conveyed no meaning to her it was not nervousness indeed so far from being nervous she was absolutely self-contained it was simply bad art she was a complete failure even the common uneducated audience of the pit and gallery lost their interest in the play they got restless and began to talk loudly and to whistle the jew manager who was standing at the back of the dress circle stamped and swore with rage the only person unmoved was the girl herself. When the second act was over, there came a storm of hisses, and Lord Henry got up from his chair and put on his coat. She is quite beautiful, Dorian, he said, but she can't act. Let us go. I am going to see the play through, answered the lad in a hard, bitter voice. I am awfully sorry that I have made you waste an evening, Harry. I apologize to you both. My dear Dorian, "'I should think Miss Vine was ill,' interrupted interrupted Hallward. "'We will come some other night.' "'I wish she were ill,' he rejoined. "'But she seems to me to be simply callous and cold. "'She has entirely altered. "'Last night she was a great artist. "'This evening she is merely a commonplace mediocre actress. "'Don't talk like that about anyone you love, Dorian. "'Love is a more wonderful thing than art.' They are both simply forms of imitation, remarked Lord Henry, but do let us go. Dorian, you must not stay here any longer. It is not good for one's morals to see bad acting. Besides, I don't suppose you will want your wife to act, so what does it matter if she plays Juliet like a wooden doll? She is very lovely, and she knows a little about life, and she knows as little about life as she does about acting. She will be a delightful experience. There are only two kinds of people who are really fascinating— people who know absolutely everything, and people who know absolutely nothing. Good heavens, my dear boy, don't look so tragic. The secret of remaining young is to never have an emotion that is unbecoming. Come to the club with Basil and myself. We will smoke cigarettes and drink to the beauty of Sybil Vane. She is beautiful. What more can you want? Go away, Harry, cried the lad. I want to be alone. Basil, you must go. Ah! Can't you see that my heart is breaking? "'the hot tears came to his eyes. "'His lips trembled and the rushing to the back of the box. "'He leaned up against the wall, hiding his face in his hands. "'Let us go, Basil,' said Lord Henry "'with a strange tenderness in his voice. "'And the two young men passed out together. "'A few moments afterwards, the footlights flared up "'and the curtain rose on the third act. "'Dorian Gray went back to his seat. "'He looked pale and proud and indifferent.' The play dragged on and seemed interminable. Half the audience went out, tramping in heavy boots and laughing. The whole thing was a fiasco. The last act was played to almost empty benches. The curtain went down on a titter and some groans. As soon as it was over, Dorian Gray rushed behind the scenes into the green room. The girl was standing there alone with a look of triumph on her face. Her eyes were lit with an exquisite fire. There was a radiance about her. Her parted lips were smiling over some secret of their own. When he entered, she looked at him. An expression of infinite joy came over her. How badly I acted tonight, Dorian, she cried. Horribly, he answered, gazing at her in amazement. Horribly, it was dreadful. Are you ill? You have no idea what it was. You have no idea what I suffered. The girl smiled. Dorian? Dorian? she answered, lingering over his name with a long-drawn music in her voice, as though it were sweeter than honey to the red petals of her mouth. Dorian, you should have understood. But you understand now, don't you? Understand what? he asked angrily. Why I was so bad tonight. Why I shall always be bad. Why I shall never act well again. He shrugged his shoulders. You are ill, I suppose. When you are ill, you shouldn't act you make yourself ridiculous my friends were bored i was bored she seemed not to listen to him she was transfigured with joy and ecstasy of happiness dominated her dorian dorian she cried before i knew you acting was the only one reality of my life it was the only it was only in the theater that i lived I thought that it was all true. I was Rosalind one night and Portia the other. The joy of Beatrice was my joy, and the sorrows of Cordelia were mine also. I believed in everything. The common people who acted with me seemed to me godlike. The painted scenes were my world. I knew nothing but shadows, and I thought them real. You came, oh, my beautiful love, and you freed my soul from prison. You taught me what reality really is. Tonight... For the first time in my life I saw through the hollowness the sham the silliness of the empty pageant in which I had always played tonight for the first time I became conscious that the romeo was hideous and old and painted that the moonlight in the orchard was false that the scenery was vulgar and that the words I had and that the words I had to speak were unreal were not my words were not what I wanted to say You had brought me something higher, something of which all art is but a reflection. You had made me understand what love really is. My love, my love, my prince charming, prince of life. I have grown sick of shadows. You are more to me than all art can ever be. What have I to do with the puppets of a play? When I came on tonight, I could not understand how it was that everything had gone from me. I thought that I was going to be wonderful. I found that I could do nothing. Suddenly it dawned on my soul what it all meant. The knowledge was exquisite to me. I heard them hissing, and I smiled. What could they know of love, of a love such as ours? Take me away, Dorian, take me away with you, where we can be quite alone. I hate the stage. I might mimic a passion that I do not feel, but I cannot mimic one that burns on me like a fire. Oh, Dorian, Dorian, you must understand what now it signifies— Even if I could do it, it would be profanation for me to play at being in love. You have made me see that. He flung himself down on the sofa and turned away his face. You have killed my love, he muttered. She looked at him in wonder and laughed. He made no answer. She came across to him with her little fingers stroked, and with her little fingers stroked his hair. She knelt down and pressed his hand to her lips. He withdrew them away, and a shudder ran through him. Then he leaped up and went to the door. "'Yes,' he cried, "'you have killed my love. You used to stir my imagination. Now you don't even stir my curiosity. You simply produce no effect. I loved you because you were marvelous, because you had genius and intellect, because you realized the dreams of great poets and gave shape and substance to the shadows of art. You have thrown it all away.' You are shallow and stupid. My God, how mad I was to love you. What a fool I have been. You are nothing to me now. I will never see you again. I will never think of you. I will never mention your name. You don't know what you were to me. Once? Why, once? Oh, I can't bear to think of it. I wish I had never laid eyes upon you. You have spoiled the romance of my life. How little you can know of love if you say it mars your art. Without your art, you are nothing. I would have made you famous, splendid, magnificent. The world would have worshipped you, and you would have borne my name. What are you now, a third-rate actress with a pretty face? The girl grew white and trembled. She clenched her hands together and her voice seemed to catch in her throat. You are not serious, Dorian, she murmured. You are acting. Acting, I leave that to you. You do it so well, he answered bitterly. She rose from her knees and, with the piteous expression of pain in her face, came across the room to him. She put her hand upon his arm and looked into his eyes. He thrust her back. Don't touch me, he cried. A low moan broke from her and she flung herself at his feet and lay there like a tramped flower. Dorian, Dorian, don't leave me, she whispered. "'I am so sorry I didn't act well. "'I was thinking of you all the time. "'But I will try, indeed, I will try. "'It came so suddenly across me, my love for you. "'I think I should have never known it "'if you had not kissed me, "'if we had not kissed each other. "'Kiss me again, my love. "'Don't go away from me, I couldn't bear it. "'Oh, don't go away from me. "'My brother, no, never mind. "'He didn't mean it, he was in jest. "'But you, oh, you can't forgive me for tonight?' "'I will work so hard and try to improve. "'Don't be cruel to me because I love you better than anything in the world. "'After all, it is only once that I have not pleased you. "'But you are quite white, quite right, Dorian. "'I should have shown myself more of an artist. "'It was foolish of me, and yet I couldn't help it. "'Oh, don't leave me, don't leave me!' "'A fit of passionate sobbing choked her. "'She crouched on the floor like a wounded thing.' and Dorian Gray, with his beautiful eyes, looked down at her, and his chiseled lips curled an exquisite disdain. There was always something ridiculous about the emotions of people whom one has ceased to love. Sybil Vane seemed to him to be absurdly melodramatic. Her tears and sobs annoyed him. "'I am going,' he said at last in his calm, clear voice. "'I don't wish to be unkind, but I can't see you again.' "'You have disappointed me.' "'She wept silently and made no answer, but crept nearer. "'Her little hand stretched blindly out "'and appeared to be seeking for him. "'He turned on his heel and left the room. "'In a few moments he was out of the theatre. "'Where he went, he... where he went to, he hardly knew.' He remembered wandering through dimly lit streets, past gaunt black-shadowed archways and evil-looking houses. Women with women with hoarse voices and harsh laughter had called after him. Drunkards had reeled by, cursing and chattering to themselves like monstrous apes. He had seen grotesque children huddled upon doorsteps and heard shrieks and oaths from gloomy courts. As the dawn was just breaking, he found himself close to Covent Garden. The darkness lifted and, flushed with faint fires, the sky hollowed itself into a perfect pearl. Huge carts filled with nodding lilies rumbled slowly down the polished, empty street. The air was heavy with the perfume of the flowers, and their beauty seemed to bring him an adenine for his pain. He followed into the market and watched the men unloading their wagons. A white-smocked carter offered him some cherries. He thanked him wondered why he refused to accept any money for them and began to eat them listlessly they had been plucked at midnight and the coldness of the moon had entered into them a long line of boys carrying crates of striped tul- of striped tulips and of yellow and red roses defiled in front of him treading their way through the huge jade green piles of vegetables under the portico, with, with its gray sun-bleached pillars, loitered a troop of draggled, bare-headed girls waiting for the auction to be over. Others crowded round the swinging doors of the coffee house in the piazza. The heavy cart horses slipped and stamped upon the rough stones, shaking their bells and trappings. Some of the drivers were lying asleep on the pile of sacks. Iris-necked and pink-footed, the pigeons ran about picking up seeds. After a while, he hailed a hansom and drove home. For a few moments, he loitered upon the doorstep, looking round the silent square with its blank, closed, shuttered windows and its staring blinds. The sky was pure opal now, and the roofs of the houses glistened like silver against it. From some chimney opposite, a thin wreath of smoke was rising; it curled a violet riband through the nacre-coloured air, and the huge gilt Venetian lantern. Spoil of some doge's barge that hung from the ceiling of the great oak-paneled hall of entrance, lights were still burning from three flickering jets. Thin blue petals of flame, they seemed, rimmed with white fire. He turned them out and, having thrown his hat and cape on the table, passed through the library towards the door of his bedroom, a large octagonal chamber on the ground floor that, in his newborn feeling for luxury, he had just decorated for himself and hung with some curious Renaissance tapestries that had been discovered, stored in a disused attic at Selby Royal, as he was turning the handle of the door, his eye fell upon the portrait Basil Hallward had painted of him. He start he started back as if in surprise, then he went on into his own room, looking somewhat puzzled after he had taken the buttonhole out of his coat, he seemed to hesitate. Finally, he came back, went over to the picture, and examined it. In the dim, arrested light that struggled through the cream-colored silk blinds, the face appeared to him to be a little changed. The expression looked different. One would have said that there was a touch of cruelty in the mouth. It was certainly strange. He turned round and, walking to the window, drew up the blind. The bright dawn flooded the room and swept the fantastic shadows into dusky corners where they lay shuddering, but the strange expression that he had noticed in the face of the portrait seemed to linger there, to be more intensified even. The quivering ardent sunlight showed him the lines of cruelty around the mouth as clearly as if he had been looking into a mirror after he had done some dreadful thing. He winced and, taking up from the table an oval glass framed in ivory cupids, one of Lord Henry's many presents to him, glanced hurriedly into its polished depths. No line like that warped his red lips. What did it mean? He rubbed his eyes and came close to the picture and examined it again. There were no signs of any change when he looked into the actual painting, and yet, There was no doubt that the whole expression had altered. It was not a mere fancy of his own. The thing was horribly apparent. He threw himself into a chair and began to think. Suddenly there flashed across his mind what he had said in Basil Hallward's studio the day the picture had been finished. Yes, he remembered it perfectly. He had uttered a mad wish that he himself might remain young and that the portrait grow old, that his own beauty might be untarnished and the face on the canvas bear the burden of his passions and his sins, that the painted image might be seared with the lines of suffering and thought, and that he might keep all the delicate bloom and loveliness of his then just conscious boyhood. Surely his wish had not been fulfilled. Such things were impossible. It seemed monstrous even to think of them, and yet there was the picture before him with a touch of cruelty in the mouth cruelty. Had he been cruel? It was the girl's fault, not not his. He had dreamed of her as a great artist, had given his love to her because he had thought her great. Then she had disappointed him. She had been shallow and unworthy, and yet a feeling of infinite regret came over him as he thought of her lying at his feet, sobbing like a little child. He remembered with what callousness he had watched her. Why had he been made like that? Why had such a soul been given to him? But he had suffered also. During the three terrible hours of the play, during the three terrible hours that the play had lasted, he had lived centuries of pain, aeon upon aeon of torture. His life was well worth hers. She had marred him for a moment if he had wounded her for an age. Besides, women were better suited to bear sorrow than men. They lived on their emotions. They only thought of their emotions. When they took lovers, it was merely to have someone with whom they could have scenes. Lord Henry had told him that, and Lord Henry knew what women were. Why should he trouble about Sybil Vane? She was nothing to him now. But the picture! What was he to say of that? It held the secret of his life and told his story. It had taught him to love his own beauty. Would it teach him to loathe his own soul? Would he ever look at it again? No, it was merely an illusion wrought on by troubled senses. The horrible night that had passed had left phantoms behind it. Suddenly there had fallen upon his brain that tiny scarlet speck that makes men mad. The picture had not changed. It was folly to think so. Yet it was watching him, with... With its beautiful marred face and and its cruel smile, its bright hair gleamed in the early sunlight, its blue eyes met his own. A sense of infinite pity, not for himself, but for the painted image of himself, came over him. It had altered already and would alter more. Its gold would wither into gray. Its red and white roses would die. For every sin that he committed, a stain would fleck and wreck its fairness. But he would not sin the picture, changed or unchanged, would be to him the visible emblem of conscience. He would resist temptation. He would not see Lord Henry any more. would not at any rate listen to those subtle poisonous theories that in Basil Hallward's garden had first stirred with he- within him the passion for impossible things. He would go back to Sybil Vane, make her amends, marry her, try to love her again. Yes, it was his duty to do so. She must have suffered more than he had, Poor child! He had been selfish and cruel to her. The fascination that she had exercised over him would return. They would be happy together. His life with her would be beautiful and pure. He got up from his chair and drew a large screen right in front of the portrait, shuddering as he glanced at it. How horrible! he murmured to himself as he walked across to the window and opened it. When he stepped out onto the grass, he drew a deep breath. THE FRESH MORNING AIR SEEMED TO DRIVE AWAY ALL HIS SOMBER PASSIONS. HE THOUGHT ONLY OF Sibyl. A FAINT ECHO OF HIS LOVE CAME BACK TO HIM. HE REPEATED HER NAME OVER AND OVER AGAIN. THE BIRDS THAT WERE SINGING IN THE DEW-DRENCHED GARDEN SEEMED TO BE TELLING THE FLOWERS ALL ABOUT HER. CHAPTER Eight. IT WAS LONG PAST NOON WHEN HE AWOKE. His valet had crept several times on tiptoe into the room to see if he was stirring and had wondered what made his young master sleep so late. Finally, his bell sounded, and Victor came in softly with a cup of tea and a pile of letters on a small tray of old server's china and drew back the olive satin curtains with their shimmering blue lining that hung in front of the three tall windows. "'Monsieur has slept well this morning.' he said, smiling. What o'clock is it, Victor? asked Dorian Gray drowsily. One hour and a quarter, Monsieur. How late it was! He sat up and, having sipped some tea, turned over his letters. One of them was from Lord Henry and had been brought by hand that morning. He hesitated for a moment and then put it aside. The others he opened listlessly. They contain the usual collection of cards, invitations to dinner, tickets for private views, programs of charity concerts, and the like, that are showered on fashionable young men every morning during the season there was a rather heavy bill for a chased silver Louis Kins toilet set that he had not yet had the courage to send on to his guardians, who were extremely old-fashioned people and did not realize that we live in an age when unnecessary things are our only necessities. And there were several very courteously worded communications from Germine Street money lenders offering to advance any sum of money at a moment's notice and at the most reasonable rates of interest. About ten minutes, after about ten minutes, he got up and, throwing on an elaborate dressing gown of silk-embroidered cashmere wool, passed into the onyx-paved bathroom. The cool water refreshed him after his long sleep. He seemed to have forgotten all that he had gone through. A dim sense of having taken part in some strange tragedy came to him once or twice, but there was the unreality of a dream about it. As soon as he was dressed, he went into the library and sat down to a light French breakfast that had been laid out for him on a small round table close to the open window. It was an exquisite day. The warm air seemed laden with spices. A bee flew in and buzzed around the blue dragon bowl that, filled with sulfur-yellow roses, stood before him. He felt perfectly happy. Suddenly, his eye fell on the screen that he had placed in front of the portrait, and he started. "'Too cold, for monsieur?' asked his valet, putting an omelette on the table. "'I shut the window?' Dorian shook his head. "'I am not cold,' he murmured. "'Was it all true? Had the portrait really changed? "'Or had it been simply his own imagination that had made him see a look of evil, where there had been a look of joy? Surely a painted canvas would not alter—' "'The thing was absurd. "'It would serve as a tale to tell Basil some day, "'and it would make him smile. "'And yet how vivid was his recollection of the whole thing. First in the dim twilight, and then in the bright dawn, "'he had seen the touch of cruelty round the warped lips. "'He almost dreaded his valet leaving the room. "'He knew that when he was alone "'he would have to examine the portrait. "'He was afraid of certainty. "'When the coffee and cigarettes had been brought "'and the man turned to go,' He felt a wild desire to tell him to remain. As the door was closing behind him, he called him back. The man stood waiting for his orders. Dorian looked at him for a moment. "'I am not home to anyone, Victor,' he said with a sigh. The man bowed and retired. Then he rose from the table, lit a cigarette, and flung himself down on a luxuriously cushioned couch that stood facing the screen. The screen was an old one of gilt Spanish leather stamped and wrought with a rather florid Louis Couturze pattern. He scanned it curiously, wondering if it had ever before been, had it ever before had concealed the secret of a man's life. Should he move it aside after all? Why not let it stay there? What was the use of knowing? If the thing was true, "'It was terrible. If it was not true, why trouble about it? "'But what if, by some fate or deadlier chance, "'eyes other than his spied behind and saw the horrible change? "'What should he do if Basil Hallward came and asked to look at his own picture? "'Basil would be sure to do that. "'No, the thing had to be examined, and at once. "'Anything would be better than this dreadful state of doubt.' "'He got up and locked both doors.' At least he would be alone when he looked upon the mask of his shame. Then he drew the screen aside and saw himself face to face. It was perfectly true. The portrait had altered. As he often remembered afterwards and always with no small wonder, he found himself at first gazing at the portrait with a feeling of almost scientific interest. That such a change should have taken place was incredible to him, and yet it was a fact. Was there some subtle affinity between the chemical atoms that shaped themselves into form and color on the canvas and the soul that was within him? Could it be that what that soul thought they realized? That what a dream they made true? Or was there some other more terrible reason? He shuddered and felt afraid and, going back to the couch, lay there gazing at the picture in sickened horror. One thing, however, he felt that, It had done for him. It had made him conscious how unjust, how cruel he had been to Sybil Vane. It was not too late to make reparation for that. She could still be his wife. His unreal and selfish love would yield to some higher influence, would be transformed into some nobler passion, and the portrait that Basil Howard... Hallward, had painted of him, would be a guide to him through life, would be to him what holiness is to some, and conscience to others, and the fear of God to us all. There were opiates for remorse, drugs that could lull the moral sense to sleep. But here was a visible symbol of the degradation of sin. Here was an ever-present sign of the ruin men brought upon their own souls." three o'clock struck, and four, and the half-hour rang its double chime, but Dorian Gray did not stir. He was trying to gather up the scarlet threads of life and to weave them into a pattern to find his way through the sanguine labyrinth of passion through which he was wandering. He did not know what to do or what to think. Finally, he went over to the table and wrote a passionate letter to the girl he had loved, imploring her forgiveness and accusing himself of madness. He covered page after page with wild words of sorrow and wilder words of pain. There is a luxury in self-reproach. When we blame ourselves, we feel that no one else has a right to blame us. It is the confession, not the priest, that gives us absolution. When Dorian had finished the letter, he felt that he had been forgiven. Suddenly there came a knock to the door, and he heard Lord Henry's voice outside. "'My dear boy, I must see you. "'Let me in at once. "'I can't bear your shutting yourself up like this.' "'He made no answer at first, but remained quite still. "'The knocking still continued and grew louder. "'Yes, it was better to let Lord Henry in "'and to explain to him the new life he was going to lead, "'to quarrel with him if it became necessary to quarrel, "'to part if parting was inevitable. "'He jumped up, drew the screen hastily across the picture "'and unlocked the door.' "'I am so sorry for it all, Dorian,' said Lord Henry as he entered. "'But you must not think too much about it.' "'Do you mean about Sibyl Vane?' asked the lad. "'Yes, of course,' answered Lord Henry, sinking into a chair and slowly pulling off his yellow gloves. "'It is dreadful from one point of view, but it was not your fault. "'Tell me, did you go behind and see her after the play was over?' "'Yes.' "'I felt sure you had. "'Did you make a scene with her?' "'I was brutal, Harry, perfectly brutal. "'But it is all right now. "'I am not sorry for anything that has happened. "'It has taught me to know myself better. "'Ah, Dorian, I am so glad you take it in that way. "'I was afraid I would find you plunged in remorse "'and tearing that nice curly hair of yours.' "'I have got through all that,' said Dorian, "'shaking his head and smiling. "'I am perfectly happy now. "'I know what conscience is to begin with. "'It is not what you told me it was.' It is the divinest thing in us. Don't sneer at it, Harry, any more, at least not before me. I want to be good. I can't bear the idea of my soul being hideous. A very charming artistic basis for ethics, Dorian. I congratulate you on it. But how are you going to begin? By marrying Sybil Vane. Marrying Sybil Vane, cried Lord Henry, standing up and looking at him in perplexed amazement. But— "'My dear Dorian.' "'Yes, Harry, I know what you are going to say. "'Something dreadful about marriage. "'Don't say it. "'Don't ever say things of that kind to me again. Two days ago, I asked Sybil Vane to marry me. "'I am not going to break my word to her. "'She is to be my wife.' "'Your wife, Dorian. "'Didn't you get my letter? "'I wrote to you this morning "'and sent the note down by my own man.' "'Your letter? "'Oh, yes, I remember. "'I have not read it yet, Harry.' "'I was afraid there might be something in it "'that I wouldn't like. "'You cut life to pieces with your epigrams. "'You know nothing, then. "'What do you mean?' "'Lord Henry walked across the room "'and, sitting down by Dorian Gray, "'took both his hands in his own "'and held them tightly. "'Dorian,' he said, "'my letter, don't be frightened, "'was to tell you that Sybil Vane is dead.' A cry of pain broke from the lad's lips, and he leaped to his feet, tearing his hands away from Lord Henry's grasp. Dead? Sybil dead? It is not true. It is a horrible lie. How dare you say it? It is quite true, Dorian, said Lord Henry gravely. It is all in the morning papers. I wrote down to you to ask you not to see anyone till I came. There will have to be an an inquest, of course, and you must not be mixed up in it. Things like that make a man fashionable in Paris, but in London, people are so prejudiced. Here, one should never make one's debut with a scandal. One should reserve that to give an interest to one's old age. I suppose they don't know your name at the theater. If they don't, it is all right. Did anyone see you going round to her room? That is an important point. Dorian did not answer for a few moments. He was dazed with horror. Finally, he stammered in a stifled voice. "'Harry, did you say an inquest? "'What did you mean by that? "'Did Sybil—' "'Oh, Harry, I can't bear it, but be quick. "'Tell me everything at once.' "'I have no doubt it was not an accident, Dorian, "'though it must be put in that way to the public. "'It seems that as she was leaving the theatre with her mother, "'about half-past twelve or so, "'she said she had forgotten something upstairs. "'They waited some time for her, but she did not come down again.' They ultimately found her lying dead on the floor of her dressing room. She had swallowed something by mistake, some dreadful things they use at theaters. I don't know what it was, but it had either prussic acid or white lead in it. I should fancy it was prussic acid, as she seems to have died instantaneously. Harry, Harry, it is terrible, cried the lad. Yes, it is very tragic, of course, but you must not get yourself mixed up in it. I see by the standard that she was seventeen. "'I should have thought she was almost younger than that. "'She looked such a child "'and seemed to know so little about acting. "'Dorian, you mustn't let this thing get on your nerves. "'You must come and dine with me, "'and afterwards we will look in at the opera. "'It is a patty night and everyone will be there. "'You can come to my sister's box. "'She has got some smart women with her.' "'So I have murdered Sybil Vane,' "'said Dorian Gray half to himself. "'Murdered her as surely as if I had cut her throat with a knife.' yet the roses are not less lovely for all that. The birds sing just as happily in my garden, and tonight I am to dine with you and then go on to the opera and sup somewhere, I suppose, afterwards. How extraordinarily dramatic life is. If I had read all this in a book, Harry, I think I would have wept over it. Somehow, now that it has happened actually, and, and to me, it seems far too wonderful for tears. Here is the first passionate love letter I have ever written in my life. Strange that my first passionate love letter should have been addressed to a dead girl. Can they feel, I wonder, those white silent people we call dead? Sybil, can she feel or know or listen? Oh, Harry, how I loved her once! It seemed years ago to me now. She was everything to me. Then came the dreadful night. Was it really only last night, when she played so badly and my heart almost broke? She explained it all to me. It was terribly pathetic. But I was not moved a bit. I thought her shallow. Suddenly something happened that made me afraid. I can't tell you what it was, but it was terrible. I said I would go back to her. I I felt I had done wrong. And now she is dead. My God! My God, Harry! What shall I do? You don't know what danger I am in, and, and there is nothing to keep me straight. She would have done that for me. She had no right to kill herself. It it was selfish of her. My dear Dorian, answered Lord Henry, taking a cigarette from his case and producing a gold-laden matchbox. The only way a woman can ever reform a man is by boring him so completely that he loses all possible interest in life. If you had married this girl, you would have been wretched. Of course, you you would have treated her kindly. One can always be kind to people about whom one cares nothing. But she would have soon found out that you were absolutely indifferent to her. And when a woman finds that out about her husband, she either becomes dreadfully dowdy or wears very smart bonnets that some other woman's husband has to pay for. I say nothing about the social mistake, which had, which would have been abject, which, of course, I would not have allowed. But I assure you that in any case, the whole thing would have been an absolute failure. I suppose it would. Murdered, "'murmured the lad, walking up and down the room and looking horribly pale. "'But I thought it was my duty. "'It is not my fault that this terrible tragedy has, preven- had, has prevented my doing what is right. "'I remember your saying once that there is a fatality about good resolutions, "'but they are always made too late. "'Mine certainly were. "'Good resolutions are useless attempts to interfere with scientific laws. "'Their origin is pure vanity.' The result is absolutely nil. They give us now and then some of those luxurious, sterile emotions that have a certain charm for the weak. That is all that can be said for them. They are simply checks that men draw on a bank where they have no account. Harry, cried Dorian Gray, coming over and sitting down beside him. Why is it that I cannot feel this tragedy as much as I want to? I don't think I am heartless. Do you? You have done too many foolish things during the last fortnight to be entitled to give yourself that name, Dorian, answered Lord Henry with his sweet, melancholy smile. The lad frowned. I don't like that explanation, Harry, he rejoined, but I am glad you don't think I am heartless. I am nothing of the kind. I know I am not. And yet I must admit that this thing that has happened does not affect me as it should. It seems to me to be simply like a wonderful ending to a wonderful play. It has all the terrible beauty of a greek tragedy a tragedy in which i took a great part but by which i have not been wounded it is an interesting question said lord henry who found an exquisite pleasure in playing on the lad's unconscious egotism an extremely interesting question i fancy that the true explanation is this It often happens that the real tragedies of life occur in such an inartistic manner that they hurt us by their crude violence, their absolute incoherence, their absurd want of meaning, their entire lack of style. They affect us just as vulgarity affects us. They give us an impression of sheer brute force, and we revolt against that. Sometimes, however, a tragedy that possesses artistic elements of beauty crosses our lives. If these elements of beauty are real, the whole thing simply appeals to our sense of dramatic effect. Suddenly, we find that we are no longer the actors, but the spectators of the play. Or rather, we are both. We watch ourselves, and the mere wonder of the spectacle enthralls us. In the present case, what is it that has really happened? Someone has killed herself for love of you. I wish that it had never happened, It would have made me in love with love for the rest of my life. The people who have adored me, there have not been very many, but there have been some, have always insisted on living on long after I had ceased to care for them or they to care for me. They have become stout and tedious, and when I meet them, they go in at once for reminiscences. That awful memory of a woman, what a fearful thing it is, and what an utter intellectual stagnation it reveals. One should absorb the color of life, but one should never remember its details. Details are always vulgar. I must sow poppies in my garden, sighed Dorian. There is no necessity, rejoined his companion. Life has always poppy in her hands. Of course, now and then things linger. I once wore nothing but violets all through one season as a form of artistic mourning for a romance that would not die. Ultimately, however, it did die. I forget what killed it. I think it was her proposing to sacrifice the whole world for me. That is always a dreadful moment. It fills one with the terror of eternity. Well, would you believe it? A week ago, at Lady Hampshire's, I found myself seated at dinner next to the lady in question, and she insisted on going over the whole thing again and digging up the past and raking up the future. I had buried my romance in a bed of abstrudel. She dragged it out again and assured me that I had spoiled her life. I am bound to state that she ate an enormous dinner, so I did not feel any anxiety. But what a lack of taste she showed. The one charm of the past is that it is the past, but women never know when the curtain has fallen. They always want a sixth act, and as soon as the interest of the play is entirely over, they propose to continue it. If they were allowed their own way, every comedy would have a tragic ending, and every tragedy would culminate in a farce. They are charmingly artificial, but they have no sense of art. You are more fortunate than I am, I assure you, Dorian, that not one of the women I have known would have done for me what Sybil Vane did for you. Ordinary women always console themselves. Some of them do it by going in for sentimental colors. Never trust a woman who wears mauve, whatever her age may be, or a woman over 35 who is fond of pink ribbons. It always means that they have a history others find a great consolation in suddenly discovering the good qualities of their husbands they flaunt their conjugal felicity in one's face as if it, as if it were the most fascinating of sins religion consoles some it's a mystery have all the charm its mysteries have all the charm of a flirtation a woman once told me and i can quite understand it besides nothing makes one so vain as being told that one is a sinner Conscience makes egotists of all of us. Yes, there is really no end to the consolations that women find in modern life. Indeed, I have not mentioned the most important one. What is that, Harry? said the lad listlessly. Oh, the obvious consolation. Taking someone else's admirer when one loses one's own and good society that always whitewashes a woman. But really, Dorian, how different Sybil Vane must have been from all the women one meets. There is something to me quite beautiful about her death. I am glad I am living in a century when such wonders happen. They make one believe in the reality of the things we all play with, such as romance, passion, and love. I was terribly cruel to her. You forget that. I am afraid that women appreciate cruelty, downright cruelty, more than anything else. They have wonderfully primitive instincts. We have emancipated them, but they remain slaves looking for their masters all the same. They love being dominated. I am sure you were splendid. I have never seen you really and absolutely angry, but I can fancy how delightful you looked. And after all, you said something to me the day before yesterday that seemed to me at the time to be merely fanciful. But that I see now was absolutely true, and it holds the key to everything. What was that, Harry? You said to me that Sibyl Vane represented to you all the heroines heroines of romance, that she was Desdemona one night and Ophelia the other, that if she died as Juliet, she came to life as Imogene. She will never come to life again now, muttered the lad, burying his face in his hands. No. "'She will never come to life. "'She has played her last part. "'But you but you must think of that lonely death "'in the tawdry dressing room "'simply as a strange lurid fragment "'from some Jacobian tragedy, "'as a wonderful scene from Webster or Ford "'or Cyril Tornier. "'The girl never really lived, "'and so she has never really died.' To you, at least, she was always a dream, a phantom that flitted through Shakespeare's plays and left them lovelier for its presence, a wreath through which Shakespeare's music sounded richer and more full of joy. The moment she touched actual life, she married it and it married her, and so she passed away. Mourn for Ophelia, if you like. Put ashes on your head because Cordelia was strangled. Cry out against heaven because the daughter of Brabantio died. But don't waste your tears over Sybil Vane. She was less real than they are. There was silence. The evening darkened in the room. Noiselessly and with silver feet, the shadows crept in from the garden. The colors faded wearily out of things. After some time, Dorian Gray looked up. You have explained me to myself, Harry, he murmured with something of a sigh of relief. I felt all that you have said, but somehow I was afraid of it, and I could not express it to myself. How well you know me! But we will not talk again of what has happened. It has been a marvelous experience, that is all. I wonder if life still has in store for me anything as marvelous. Life has everything in store for you, Dorian. There is nothing that you, with your extraordinary good looks, will not be able to do. But suppose, Harry, suppose I became haggard and old and wrinkled. What then? Ah, then said lord henry rising to go then my dear dorian you would have to fight for your victories as it is they are brought to you no you must keep your good looks we live in an age that reads too much to be wise and that thinks too much to be beautiful we cannot spare you and now you had better dress and drive down to the curb we are rather late as it is i think i shall join you at the opera harry i feel too tired to eat anything "'What is the number of your sister's box?' Twenty-seven, I believe. "'It is on the grand tier. "'You will see her name on the door. "'But I am sorry you won't come and dine.' "'I don't feel up to it,' said Dorian listlessly, "'but I am awfully obliged to you "'for all that you have said to me. "'You are certainly my best friend. "'No one has ever understood me as you have.' "'We are only at the beginning of our friendship, Dorian,' "'answered Lord Henry, shaking him by the hand. "'Good-bye.' I shall see you before 9.30, I hope. Remember, Patty is singing. As he closed the door behind him, Dorian Gray touched the bell, and in a few minutes Victor appeared with the lamps and drew the blinds down. He waited impatiently for him to go. The man seemed to take an interminable amount of time over everything. As soon as he had left, he rushed to the screen and drew it back. No, there was no further change in the picture. It had received the news of Sybil Vane's death before he had known of it. Before he had known of it himself, it was conscious of the events of life as they occurred. The vicious cruelty that marred the fine lines of the mouth had no doubt appeared at the very moment that the girl had drunk the poison, whatever it was. Or was it indifferent to results? Did it merely take cognizance of what passed within the soul? "'he wondered and hoped that some day "'he would see the change taking place "'before his very eyes, shuddering as he hoped it. "'Poor Sybil! "'What a romance it had all been! "'She had often mimicked death on the stage. "'Then death himself had touched her "'and taken her with him. "'How she had played the dreadful last scene! "'Had she cursed him as she died? "'No, she had died for love of him, "'and love would always be a sacrament to him now.' she had atoned for everything by the sacrifice she had made of her life. He would not think any more of what she had made him go through on that horrible night at the theater. When he thought of her, it would be as a wonderful tragic figure sent on the world stage to show the supreme reality of love. A wonderful tragic figure? Tears came to his eyes as he remembered her childlike look and winsome fanciful ways and shy, tremulous grace. He brushed them away hastily and looked again at the picture. He felt that the time had really come for making his choice, or had his choice already been made. Yes, life had decided that for him, life and his own infinite curiosity about life, eternal youth, infinite passion, pleasures, subtle and sweet, wild joys and wilder sins. He was to have all these things. The portrait was to bear the burden of his shame. That was all. A feeling of pain crept over him as he thought of the of the desecration that was in store for the fair face on the canvas once a boyish mockery of narcissus he had kissed or feigned to kiss those painted lips that now smiled so cruelly at him morning after morning he had sat before the portrait wondering at its beauty almost enamored of it as it seemed to him at times was it to alter now with every mood to which he yielded Was it to become a monstrous and loathsome thing, to be hidden away in a locked room, to be shut out from the sunlight that had so often touched the brighter gold of the waving wonder of its hair? The pity of it! The pity of it! For a moment he thought of praying that the horrible sympathy that existed between him and the picture might cease. It had changed in answer to a prayer. Perhaps in answer to a prayer it might remain unchanged. And yet, And yet who, that knew anything about life, would surrender the chance of remaining always young, however fantastic that chance might be, or with what fateful consequences it might be fraught? Besides, it was really under his control. Had it indeed been prayer that had produced the substitution? Might there not be some curious scientific reason for it all? If thought could exercise its influence upon a living organism, might not thought exercise an influence upon a de- upon dead and inorganic things? Nay, without thought of conscious desire, might not things external to ourselves vibrate in unison with our moods and passions? Adam calling to Adam in secret love or strange affinity? But the reason was of no importance. He would never again tempt by a prayer any terrible power. If the picture was to alter, it was to alter. That was all. Why inquire too closely into it? For there would be a real pleasure in watching it. He would be able to follow his mind into its secret places. This portrait would be to him the most magical of mirrors. As it had revealed to him his own body, so it would reveal to him his own soul. And when winter came upon it, he would still be standing where the spring trembles on the verge of stu- on the verge of summer. When the blood crept from its face and left behind a pallid mask of chalk with leaden eyes, he would keep the glamour of boyhood. Not one blossom of his loveliness would ever fade. Not one pulse of his life would ever weaken. Like the gods of the Greeks, he would be strong and fleet and joyous. What did it matter what happened to the colored image on the canvas? He would be safe. That was everything. He drew the screen back into its former place in front of the picture, smiling as he did so, and passed into his bedroom, where his valet was already waiting for him. An hour later, he was at the opera, and Lord Henry was leaning over his chair. And that brings me to the conclusion of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, chapters six through eight. Thank you guys so much for your patience as I go through with my technical difficulties here. In the meantime, like I said, I will just continue to uh, repost these, to reread these chapters, to get them to you, because I would so hate to leave you hanging in the middle of such a wonderful, wonderful classic story. So again, thank you guys so much for tuning in here to Carla Reads the Classics. Thank you so much for your words of encouragement and for your words of congratulations today on the two-year anniversary of this podcast. And I hope you will be around for quite some time, just like I plan to be. Thank you again for listening. Until next time.